It's not just about you must have XYZ skill set and five plus years of this and that experience. It's also about you selling your company to the competitive job seeker landscape that's out there. So capturing again your culture, your mission, the personality of the company or the manager is going to be a differentiator. I'm Patrick Pacheco, and you're listening to Season 3 of In Good Companies from Cadence Bank, the podcast where we share our wealth of knowledge to help you navigate the opportunities ahead. Because that's what Cadence is all about, the expertise and flexibility to do business on your terms. We're empowered to help, whether it's through our podcast or any of our more than 400 locations across the South and Texas. This year, the U.S. reached a new low or rather its unemployment rate did. In January 2023, U.S. unemployment fell to 3.4%, the lowest it's been since 1969. Competition for skilled workers is so fierce, companies refer to it as the talent war. If you listen to our latest bonus episode, you'll know that the labor force is changing. Workers have different priorities than they used to. The rise of job hopping and remote work means companies need to hire more often and be more compelling to job seekers. It also means that your talent acquisition process, from recruiting strategy to salary negotiation, needs to be dialed in. Is it? That's where Jennifer McNaughton can help. Thank you, Patrick, for having me. My name is Jennifer McNaughton. Please call me Jen. And I am the Senior Director of Talent Attraction at Indeed. So my purview is Director Plus Hiring within Indeed on a global scale. Through her work and Indeed's unique visibility into hiring, Jen has developed a set of best practices, integrating the most effective talent acquisition strategies from across the economy, except that indeed, they have their own name for it. Yeah, so talent acquisition, and we at Indeed, we call it talent attraction, so there's no one name for this, is multiple things. It is the team, the strategy, the process for hiring, and it encompasses everything from employer branding, to advertising jobs, to sourcing, recruiting, interviewing, basically everything you need to do all the way up to making a hire. The first step in the hiring process is sourcing candidates. And here, Jen advocates casting a wide net. So businesses looking to find the right candidate, they have to know where to look. So when you're looking for a candidate, what business sources should companies utilize to to find good talent? All of them. (laughs) So (laughs) there are sites like Indeed. There are a host of other things, job fairs, employee referrals and employee networks, colleges and technical schools, alumni associations, staffing and recruiting firms, advertising, social media, direct recruitment. If you're a larger organization and you have a talent attraction strategy and you employ recruiters directly recruiting uh, and, and that sort of philosophy. So there are a lot of different areas to source candidates for your open roles. There's no right way to recruit. Some companies prefer a more active approach, while others let candidates come to them. Jen says each strategy has its time and place. Active recruiting is most beneficial in identifying those more passive candidates who may not be actively considering new opportunities, right? So people who are gainfully employed, happy where they are, not looking and scrolling through Indeed and and looking for a new role, actively recruiting somebody like that 
is a very targeted approach. It will likely yield a lower volume of candidates, but potentially will bring in those candidates with the very skill set and experience that you're looking for, who otherwise may not have been under consideration because they didn't apply. When you're hiring leaders or more senior employees, that's typically the approach that you would take. Now, the opposite of that would be the more passive recruiting. It also allows for several benefits, right? So as we've been talking about with any advertising efforts that your employer brand is putting forward, if your role is posted publicly and you invest in advertising those roles in various channels, not only will you get a higher volume of candidates, but it will also boost your employer brand by bringing awareness to the fact that your company is hiring, right? So the rub there is that unless you use a strategy to help align qualified applicants, you could become overwhelmed with the volume of applications. So the benefit of, of those who are qualified, though, is that you know that because they applied, they are interested in the role, they would like to be interviewed for the role, as opposed to the more active approach where they may or may not be interested in making the move. Is there any downside to maintaining kind of a talent pool or candidate pipeline, should companies be doing that or does that potentially get stale or how do you maintain that? In my opinion, maintaining a candidate pool or a candidate pipeline is one of the best proactive approaches any company can take. Especially helpful if you know, for example, you're always hiring for customer service representatives or you're always hiring for software engineers. Having that pool sort of at the ready will help you be more efficient when your openings happen. You'll be able to pull people in pretty quickly. The drawback is that having a list of names is not enough. I think it's very important to maintain a candidate pool or a candidate pipeline, but it's only going to be effective and efficient for you if you have an engagement communication strategy in place to touch those candidates and make sure that they're engaged with your employer brand so when you're ready to hire, they're at the ready. So do you let those candidates know, look, we're not necessarily hiring today, but we've found you to be an attractive candidate and we, we do have positions come, come open? Sure, they've applied to the job, right? So it's perfectly fair to say, listen, candidate, unfortunately, we've moved forward with another person for this role. However, really like your background, I would like to keep talking to you about Indeed or about my company. And I would like to see if down the road there is an opening that would make sense for you. So let's stay in touch. So... Often the very first time a candidate sees a job that they want to go to, what they're looking at is some job description. And those sometimes are not the most exciting, sometimes they're not even the most accurate things in the world. So what makes an irresistible job description? I mean, aside from making sure that you have the required skill set, experience, and expertise clearly outlined, right, to make sure that the candidates that are applying are actually reading the job description and, and, and so on. I think capturing the company's culture and personality and mission is really important. Going and, and doing a formatted job description like that has been the same for the last 25 years is not going to be the exciting one, Patrick, that you're, that you're calling out, right? Uh, this is where I like to work with the managers to kind of capture their voice a little bit get a little bit of their tone and really highlight what's so great about your company in the description. It's not just about 
you must have XYZ skill set and five plus years of this and that experience. It's also about you selling your company to the competitive job seeker landscape that's out there. So capturing, again, your culture, your mission, the personality of the company or the manager is going to be a differentiator. Yeah, it's interesting you said selling the company because as we've been talking, it's become very apparent that it's not just candidates selling themselves to companies, but it's really now more of companies selling themselves to candidates that's important. Absolutely. Absolutely. But even while you market yourself to candidates, it's important to be realistic about the role. Yeah, I I would encourage full transparency, right? I think that is the key. And as I think about what that looks like, I go back to if you overpromise and underdeliver, you will end up with attrition. The candidate may very well start. And then three months in, they're going to look at you and say, this is not what the job description said. This is not what you said. I'm out. And now you're back to square one again. It does not think for anyone. Employees will be able to find out what your company is really about. So it's important to be honest about who your company is and what you're about in those job descriptions so that you're getting the right employees and you're getting employees who want to be there. Would a company ever set out any negatives with regard to the company or it's a, I mean, it's a difficult job or it's, a, you know, something's to set some expectations? You'd have to be really mindful about your words, right? I think saying that, you know, this is a, a highly structured environment, for example, might be a way to clearly state that there is a very distinct process that we follow here, as opposed to, you know, we're a very creative and innovative environment. Again, being honest without being negative, you can absolutely do. You just have to be mindful of the words that you're choosing. Is there still a need for a cover letter on an application for a job? Does anybody look at them? It's not a requirement. Let's put it that way, right? I think there is an opportunity for job seekers to use cover letters to differentiate themselves from all the other applicants. For employers, requiring a cover letter is definitely not necessary. However, it can actually help you to pull out the candidates that are the most highly qualified and the most interested in the role. In the job description, you could ask for a cover letter to speak to a specific topic or keep it to a certain amount of words. And I've seen that work really well in sort of separating out applicants that maybe didn't read the job description thoroughly. To summarize all of that, the requirement for a cover letter depends on the use of the cover letter, but it shouldn't be required as a template. It should only be required if you're using it to help screen out candidates or screen in candidates. As the working world changes, businesses are becoming more inventive on how they screen candidates, and candidates are getting creative as well. I think we're seeing as the requirements of the job seeker and the requirements of companies continue to evolve and adjust to this new world that we all work in, I think we're going to continue to see innovation happen as it relates to expediting the job search process, as it relates to communicating with job seekers and employers. I think I've seen some video resumes start to come in, and I think it's just going to get more and more exciting as we go. I look forward to it. I remember hearing the story of, a, well, it's not a, not a job, it is the applicant at Stanford University. You know, you have to explain why you should be admitted into Stanford, and they wrote in glitter pen, I sparkle. That was it, and they, they got admitted. So that, I guess that was, that was pretty innovative, pretty brave. To, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
So now you have a good pool of candidates. You're thinking, okay, I've got one of these is the one. You get to the interview process, and this can be somewhat painful in, in itself. So what makes for a good interview process? So we talk about this a lot. A planned, structured process with specific focus areas is going to be a real key component to how a company can be successful in ensuring that the candidates have the right opportunity to highlight their skills, right? So I think that without a plan and structure around the interview process, you risk not fully vetting the candidate. You risk not allowing the candidate the space to shine or to sparkle. <laughs> and you also risk the candidate's experience, which at Indeed is really important. And we really encourage all of our hiring companies to focus on the candidate experience, where if you were interviewing and you met three different people and all three asked the same question, if not by design as a candidate, you might be like, are you all talking to each other in the background? So I think that's one of the things you can do to help to streamline your success is to have go into the interview process with a plan with focus areas and with some structure that you can share with the candidate ahead of time and say, this is what you can expect to see out of our process. And then it makes it much more smooth on both sides. How many rounds of interviews should people have to go through? Ooh, that's a hot topic. <laughs> the old CPA firms, I remember, they'd go, you'd get the initial one, then you'd have the office interview, then you'd have the interview with the next group, then you'd have the partner interview. I mean, it's like four or five interviews before you got hired. So what's, what's the appropriate number? I think there's a difference between how many rounds of interviews and how many individual people am I meeting, right? Because it's going to depend on the level of candidate that we're hiring for. If I'm hiring a clerk for my retail store, I may only have to have them meet two or three people. If I'm hiring a chief financial officer for my publicly traded organization, the rounds of interviews may be more lengthy. My rule of thumb is three rounds. Now, that might mean that you're meeting multiple people at the same time in sort of a panel setting. Google actually put out an article not long ago that they did some research internally that once they have exceeded four rounds of interviews, there was no more success or not on whether or not that candidate got hired. Too extended and you risk losing the candidate experience and or the candidate and too short and you risk hiring someone who wasn't fully vetted. So there's a sweet spot somewhere in there that I don't think there's a direct exact answer to, but three or four would probably be the rule of thumb. Of course, it doesn't matter how many rounds there are if you don't ask the right questions. So what makes for a good interview question? I like to use situational questions to give candidates an opportunity to explain their skills, right? Interviews are stressful for everybody. You're under pressure. You want this job. It's a tough thing to be in. And so I try to give candidates the best opportunity to shine. So the situational questions are, are, are the ones that are like, tell me about a time when you had to manage a difficult customer. How did you handle that? Or walk me through an example of how you would approach a situation where you were faced with an opposing opinion. So really like giving candidates an opportunity to tell you about a situation and how they handled it. Those are the types of questions that I like to use open-ended. So it's not just a yes or no answer. They need to explain and they need to dig in deeper. 
And then, you know, the close-ended questions are a little bit more towards the end of the process. But, but during the actual interview, I do like to keep the questions open because it does open up the conversation. It allows for it to be a little bit more free-flowing and, again, allows the candidate to really have an opportunity to explain their skills. Should you think about sending questions to candidates beforehand? Yeah, I don't like the idea of sending the questions beforehand, but I do like the idea of sending focus areas beforehand. So what we talked about earlier was having a plan going into these interviews so that the interviewers all know what their responsibility is during the course of the interview process. That way they can prepare properly as well. As diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts have increased in recent years, there's been a spotlight on the concept of implicit bias and its role in hiring. A vast body of research shows that even the best-intentioned people have unconscious attitudes that impact their decisions. But while you can't completely eliminate bias, there are ways to combat it. I have two words on that, and that's awareness and consistency. So first and foremost, being aware that we all have unconscious bias, that on top of a consistent interview process with the same areas of focus, same questions, same interview panel, that can really help mitigate bias from one candidate to the next, right? That way you're making sure that all of the interviewers are being consistent, all the candidates are having the same experience, and it allows for a better opportunity to mitigate the bias with consistency. Now, with that, I think making sure that all the interviewers have had some sort of formalized training around recognizing unconscious bias is very helpful. In fact, I would insist that if you are part of an interview panel, you must go through some sort of an unconscious bias training. We have that formalized training at Indeed. Many companies have it. But if not, there I know there are a lot of resources online that you can find that can help to train up your employees to be aware and consistent. When the situation arises, it's always been difficult. You go through an entire interview process, you know, they interview 12 people, and there's one person that says no. Should that one person's no carry the day if they're just a flat out, just don't think this is the right person, when 11 others think it is, should, should that ever carry the day? I don't think it should. I, I think that's why we have multiple interviewers, right? It doesn't need to be a unanimous decision. I think it needs to be a majority decision. But I also think listening to the person who said no is going to be pretty important, right? Because there were definitely some concerns that came there, right? So that's why having some sort of a debrief meeting or whatever you may call it post-interview with all the interviewers together, talking about all the candidates together, can help call out any concerns, can highlight any unconscious bias as well as we're talking through it. But I don't think a one, one no is not a no. That's why we have multiple people meet, just to get multiple points of view. So and that, that debrief also gives you a chance, like you said, to check each other, to, to make sure somebody's not thinking or didn't hear something incorrectly. I've, I've had situations where somebody thought they heard them say one thing and they actually said something different. So. Oh, yeah. That's exactly it. So now you have somebody you want to hire. Still the process isn't over because now you got to do the hard part. you got to make an offer. So how do, you, how do you seal the deal? How do you get somebody to come in? Do you come out with your best shot right at the start? Or what's the strategy around making sure you get that candidate that you found that you want? 
So I think this is where, when I was talking earlier about the interviews and asking open-ended questions to allow for candidates to really tell you their stories, this is the time for close-ended questions, right? Because you need to get clarity on whether or not the candidate has all the information that they need to make a decision before you even get to the offer, right? Do they have everything they need to know? Is there anything else you'd like to ask? Are you interested in moving forward? When would you be able to start? Things with finite answers, that will really get the candidate thinking this is happening, right? Let's let's get there. And then when it comes to the actual offer, and by the way, I, I would advise not to be coy. If you're excited about the candidate and you really want them to be part of your team, let them know. Let them know that you're excited and, and that you really think that they would be a great fit. One of those close-ended questions, by the way, is if we were to get an offer together for you today, would you accept, right? We, I haven't talked about money yet. They have everything they need to know to make a decision. All the other stuff is out of the way, right? So when it comes to making an actual offer, there's a million different strategies that you can employ to prevent negotiation or to negotiate or to encourage it, et cetera. I want to make it really easy for a candidate to say yes to my offer. So I don't like to, I, I wouldn't encourage people to, you know, kind of go in with a little bit of a lower offer just to allow room for negotiation. I know that's a tactic that people can take. It's not my approach. I prefer to really go in strong with a strong offer, a fair offer, and within the range that had been advertised. No matter the opening number, Jen's always ready to negotiate and not just on compensation. Yeah, no. And as much as I want to come up with my best offer and my best foot forward, I'm always prepared for a negotiation. So I think you should always expect negotiation. But I think the thing to keep in mind with that is that it's not always about salary. There are other things on the table that can be negotiated. And so I would think about things like extra time off. Do you offer, you know, if you're offering two weeks vacation, what if you offered three weeks? Would that do it? Things like sign-on bonuses where, yes, there's a financial component to it, but it's a one-time financial component. It's not, a, you know, you're not committing to a higher salary and things like that. So again, I like to put my best foot forward in the offer. I do prepare for negotiation. I also don't wait for the offer stage to talk to candidates about their expectations from a salary perspective, right? If you have that conversation throughout the interview process and you don't save it till the end, nobody is going to be surprised and you'll be able to really put a compelling offer together that has a, li a stronger likelihood to be accepted. The hiring process is the first touch point talent has with your company. If it's not dialed in, candidates will run for the hills. These best practices will be the key to landing the best candidates available. Cast a wide net, maintain a candidate pool, and develop a plan to keep them engaged. Evaluate your interview process. Are you asking the right questions? Do you account for bias? Once you have a candidate you want, make it easy for them to accept the offer. As the workforce evolves, some of the best practices might change as well. So keep your ear to the ground. Even if you're a small business, there's help out there. There's a ton of resources available for people, job seekers and employers alike. Indeed, of course, has terrific resources available for companies and job seekers. And there's a lot of recruiters out there in the world that would be happy to help answer questions or even work with you during the process. So shout out to my fellow recruiters out there. You're not in it by yourself. There are a lot of folks out there that can offer some really great advice and, and there's a lot of great resources out there that you can reach out to. 
Thanks to Jennifer McNorton of Indeed for sharing her considerable knowledge with us. If you enjoyed the show, we'd appreciate it if you'd write a review in your podcast app. Or if you're short on time, you can just rate us five stars. It only takes a second. And while you're there, subscribe. We'd love to have you because when you're with us, we're in good companies. In Good Companies is a podcast from Cadence Bank. Member FDIC, Equal Opportunity Lender. Sheena Cochran is our production coordinator. Our executive producer is Daniel Cornell. With writing and production from Andrew Gannam and sound design and mixing by Ben Cranlett, Lower Street Media. I'm your host, Patrick Pacheco. This podcast is provided as a free service to you and is for general informational purposes only. Cadence Bank and its affiliates make no representation or warranties as to the accuracy, completeness, or timeliness of the content in the podcast. The podcast is not intended to provide legal, accounting, or tax advice and should not be relied upon for such purposes. The views and opinions expressed by the host and guests in this podcast are solely their own current opinions regarding the subject matters discussed in the podcast and are based on their own perspectives. Such views, perspectives, and opinions do not reflect those of Cadence Bank or any of its affiliates or the companies in which any guest is or may be affiliated. The production and presentation of this podcast by Cadence Bank does not imply the expression of any opinion on part of Cadence Bank or any of its affiliates.